0: Are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening!
1: Hello and welcome to Where Your Treasure Is. I'm Bex and I'm here with Simon. And would you believe it that this is the start of season six of the podcast?
0: She was going to say, this is the start of our sixth season and couldn't quite get it out. So it is officially now the start of season six. Bex, hello, how are you doing?
1: I am well now that I've got my teeth in. How are you, Simon?
0: (laughs) Warm. We're recording it on a warm day. Obviously, it's probably not a warm day when you're listening to this. So have some of our warmth coming through the microphones.
1: Well, that's a lovely wee picture there of warmth radiating from your headphones as we speak this season we are calling money according to the bible and so the idea is that we're going to go through the bible in different sections and look at what it says about money about wealth about possessions about business and really explore what is the bible saying to us and what do we do with it
0: so i had this idea i've read many books about what the bible says about money And they all approach it from different angles. But I just wondered if the topic of money develops thematically through the progression of the Bible. Now, we kind of know the Bible isn't written chronologically. You can go and read it chronologically. But there are bits of it the way we normally read it from Genesis through to Revelation that aren't sequential. And in some respects, they are more thematic anyway. So what I thought we'd do, Bex, is break the Bible into sections, and I'm taking a framework of what those sections are, and we're going to start with the Old Testament law, and then history, and then poetry. It's going to be an interesting one, what the poets say about money. And then the Old Testament prophets, and that'll be the Old Testament bit done. And then we'll move into the New Testament, and what do the Gospels say about money And then money according to Acts, money according to Paul's letters, and then money according to everything that's left at the end. And I'm just wondering if we're going to find some progression and development of what the Bible says about money.
1: And I feel really excited about this because I don't know how you normally read the Bible, Simon, but often I will focus on a book at a time. And therefore, sometimes it's harder to see that overarching thread of different themes or just the Bible as a whole when you're reading it in that quite focused way. And so I'm looking forward to tracing money through the Bible and seeing what we find when we do that.
0: So I'm using a bit of a resource to help us today I've mentioned in the past some books by a guy called Mark Lloydbottom. And in there, in some of his books, he lists all of the verses in the Bible that relate to money, wealth and possessions. Now, he didn't do that work himself, actually. He is piggybacking off the work of somebody else. There was a guy called Howard Dayton. He was a businessman over in America And in 1973, he started this project of reading the Bible and not just identifying all the verses that talk about money, but he began to categorize them into a single topical index, they call it. And we're going to use this as our resource as we go through the Bible, not chronologically, but in book order, and begin to see which of those themes come out at different times during what looks like it's going to be an 8 week season the money according to the bible and episode one today is money according to the old testament law
1: and so before we dive into that simon what books are we talking about when we talk old testament law give us a really quick snapshot of that
0: so again i've taken some online guidance here and in terms of law we're going to look at the first five books of the bible sometimes called the pentateuch uh, often credited to moses and that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So any verses in those five books are fair game for our conversation today.
1: Wonderful. And so I'm looking at this incredibly helpful PDF resource, and it's 2,350 verses on money. And I'm thinking, even when we narrow this down to five books, I don't know where to start. So I thought I'd start by asking you, Simon, when you think of those first five books of the Bible and you think about money, what is the first thing that comes to mind?
0: Okay, so we're talking about books of the law. What does the law say about money? And the first thing that comes to mind is tithing. I reckon we're going to get some guidance on tithing in this bit.
1: Excellent. Do you want to start with tithing? Do you want to go there now?
0: Oh, I don't know. Oh, I have to go find my tithing section.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you find tithing, I'll tell you what I think. I was thinking two things. I was thinking about Genesis and the way that God sets up creation, the sense of work, the sense of God being Lord over everything, and what does that look like in monetary terms. And then I was also thinking first five books of the Bible – an absolute classic piece is the Ten Commandments. One of the ten, well, two of them actually feel particularly relevant to money: "Do not steal" and "Do not covet." So, Simon, are you at tithing?
0: Uh Bex, I have got 45 pages of different verses, and this is just the short version I'm working through. I've I've gone past God owns everything. I've gone past debt. I've gone past honesty. Giving Right, here we are. We've reached the section on giving. You see how it's thematic? Uh, And I reckon we're going to find something about tithing in the giving uh, amount to give. Okay, so we're going to dive in to Genesis. I think that's a cracking good place to start. And we're going to get to Genesis 14. I found something, Bex, about tithing. We're going to go from here onwards. And actually, this is really interesting. This takes us right back to the beginning of the concept of tithing. Mm. There's a guy in the Bible whose name is melchizedek and he appears twice and so we might come back to him in the new testament but we're back here in the book of genesis so quite early on we're in genesis 14 and we're going to start reading here from verse 18 then melchizedek the king of salem brought out bread and wine and he's meeting abram abram's just come back from defeating Kedorlaomer, kings of sodom and the valley of shave okay now melchizedek was the priest of god most high And he blessed Abraham and he says this, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And we caveat here for our listeners, Bex and I, we've said this before, we'll say it again. We're not theologians, we're taking this entirely from personal perspective, so feel free to comment if we go completely wrong with this. I think a lot of the, the future history of Israel and the Jews in terms of their attitude to giving looks back to this moment when Father Abraham, even before he was Abraham, gave a tenth of everything to the priest of God Most High. And it sets us on this trajectory of expectation, Not only did Melchizedek say to Abraham that God is the creator of heaven and earth, he made it all, but then Abraham gives something back to God. And I still think we should give something back to God. And I'm hoping through our journey of what the Bible says about money, we're going to find out what the Bible does say about how much to give and when and how. What would you add to that, Bex?
1: Well, when you were speaking there, I was thinking, when I get to heaven... I'd love to talk to Abraham and say, what made you go with a tenth? What was going on in your head in that moment? Because as you say, it feels like so much of the pattern of giving, of where the tithe comes from, which we'll see repeated in some of the laws in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, comes from that moment. But I guess in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why it's a tenth, does it? It sets up the principle of we give sacrificially.
0: I mean, you might think that a tenth was just a one-off moment, Abraham did it. We don't have to. Let's keep going a bit later. Almost twice as far through the Bible now, Genesis 28 and verse 20, we got to Jacob. Now, we've just had Jacob lying down in the middle of a desert, I think, and he, he sees the ladder going up and down and, oh, God's in this place. It's awesome. He lays a stone there. He calls the place Bethel. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me the food to eat and the clothes to wear. So even in this verse, we're talking about God providing all that Jacob needs so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. Not sure how God can live in a stone, but there we go. And he finishes like this. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob has clearly captured this idea from Abraham and he is going with it. We now have a principle that has been made and is being followed later in the Old Testament.
1: And I suppose the next time we see that principle coming is then under the law. And so we're getting into Leviticus, we're getting into Deuteronomy there. But what I was struck by before we get into the practicalities of why we give under the law is actually the attitudes in giving. And that comes up a lot in Exodus. And so I'm going to take us to Exodus 35. And so in this, Moses is beginning to talk about establishing the temple, This is going to be where God dwells with them and goes with them. And so in Exodus 35 and starting 21, it says, And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved then came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings and ornaments, They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. And it goes on to talk about other things people presented of value to God. But what I thought was really interesting in that passage is it's talking about giving as an act of love, as an act of service, but also to actually extend God's kingdom and their ability to have a relationship with God. So what they were giving in that moment was building the temple, which was where God was going to come and be with his people.
0: So I love that, that even though we're talking about the law and what the law says about what we should do, what we have to do, we have these moments when the Israelites go beyond the law and what they have to do, and they move into a space of generosity. Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved. And there are moments we see in the Old Testament where the priests end up saying, stop, we've got enough, we don't need any more. And the people still wanted to give. Even in this moment, we have a couple of verses later on, Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had. All the women who were willing and had the skills spun the goat hair. People weren't just bringing their money. They weren't just bringing their possessions. They were bringing their skills and they were bringing their time. And we've spoken about that in the past in the podcast. But here we are back in Exodus. People were doing the same thing. And I think it's interesting because in 35, we're just after Exodus 34. Kind of obviously. In Exodus 34, we're back into what the law says. Not generosity, but about giving because God demands it of us.
1: I'm going to make some other comments on 35, which is that I found it particularly interesting that the author was really deliberate to highlight that it was men and women alike. That he then talks about women again later on in the passage. Because this is at a time where culturally women wouldn't necessarily have possessions. They wouldn't be the head of their household. They wouldn't necessarily have that decision-making power. And yet we see that actually God is giving equality in gender and he's challenging some of the stereotypes of the day. And then right towards the end of Exodus 35 as well, we get to two people with brilliant names. We get to Bezalel
0: and O. holab, It could be Oholiab or Oholiab. I'm not sure.
1: Oholiab sounds lovely. A holy name. And that is the first time we see creativity celebrated in the Bible. It talks about them bringing their skills, their ability to work gold, to make artistic designs, and that God isn't just interested in the bricks and mortar, but that creativity also has a place in his kingdom. And that is something we can give alongside our wealth and possessions as well.
0: Absolutely. There's so much we can give. And as we're in the books of the law, I want to talk about two elements of the law where God expected his people to give. So we're going to step back one chapter into Exodus 34. It talks about six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. We'll come back to that one later on. Sabbath is a thing we need to come back to. And then celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest. This is in verse 22. It goes on in verse 23. Three times a year, all your men, back to their men again, because they're the ones out laboring, I think, harvesting, are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. There was an expectation that the best and the first was given to God. And we see that coming through right into the teachings of Jesus as well. There's an expectation that the first fruits belong to God. But there's another element of the law. Let's stick with Exodus for a bit longer. Back in Exodus 23. And actually, back into the Sabbath laws. We'll come into these. We'll segue nicely. 23 verse 10. For six years, you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. And then here's what it says. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. So, tied into the law, the first fruits go to God, then you work the land for six years, let it rest for a seventh year, but that gives space for gleaning. And the gleaning being the poor, the widows, the orphans can come and take what they can gather. So, the law expected generosity beyond the first fruits beyond the tithe and into the community and i just love that
1: and simon i know we've spoken about this a bit previously but that concept of first fruits seems really important all throughout the bible what does that look like today what are our first fruits in the 21st century
0: Our first fruit. So let's take the principle of subsistence farmers, as many of the Israelites were. They would sow and they would let God grow and then they would come around to harvest time. And they would gather some of their harvest, whether they were harvesting wheat and corn or they had sheep and goats. And then they would bring that first fruit, the first of the harvest to God. And they did that typically by way of taking it to the priests and the Levites and the temple. So how do we do that unless we ourselves are farmers? I think there is a sense of deliberateness about when we choose to give, we give out of the first that we receive, not out of what is left over at the end of the month, for example, once all the bills have been paid and all the fun has been had. So a principle that I've been taught and have tried to stick by is once I've chosen how much to give to God payday, which might happen towards the end of the month. In it comes money in the bank and I want to get rid of my first fruits to God straight away. Payday in and then I'm giving to God. I'm giving to the church. I'm giving regularly. I'm giving deliberately and therefore being disciplined. And whilst I love this process of choosing to give in that first fruit manner, I sometimes do worry that I'm losing some of the taking a gift to him if it just happens through the bank which is a great way for a church treasurer to receive money not the most heart-led way to give so I try and keep that passion on and remember oh my money is off to church because it's payday
1: I love that that's so jolly my money's off to church it's payday and so I guess you mentioned sabbath in passing there and to understand sabbath I suppose it's helpful to start with what is the biblical perspective of work And so to do that, I'm going to take us to Genesis 2, verse 2, where it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So just before that, we've had the account of creation, of God speaking everything we see into being. And it's fascinating that the Bible describes that as work. And later on, it's repeated in verse 8 that God had planted a garden, that God had effectively got his hands messy in creation and crafted it himself. And so having done that, God himself rests. And that sets the principle of what goes on to be called the Sabbath in the Old and New Testament.
0: I'm going to put a Sabbath on a Sabbath. Love it. And do you know what they call it when you have a Sabbath of Sabbaths? Double Sabbath? Oh, no. It would be Sabbath squared if it was. But no, it's the year of Jubilee.
1: Oh, we love the year of Jubilee.
0: Well, we do, but we need to find out what it is. And I have a sub-question of did it ever happen? Anyway, to find out about Jubilee, we're heading to Leviticus 25. And I'm going to read to you a bit from verse 8 onwards, it goes like this. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. That could be a tongue twister in there, I reckon. Then, have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Consecrate the fiftieth year, And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, Everyone is to return to their own property. And it goes on from there about returning land that you've sold or bought and stuff like that. What an interesting concept in the law. It's forgiving debts. It's letting servants go and slaves are freed and you return to the land you used to be in. I can almost imagine ringing my mum and saying, Mum, it's a year of Jubilee. I'm, I'm coming back to live with you when she groans and moves house or something.
1: And when we think about that concept, it's so easy to idealize it, isn't it? And think about, of course I would do that. But actually, what would happen if tomorrow you got an email saying, it's year of Jubilee, you've got to give your house back, you've got to let go of all your wealth. Would we still be as excited about it as we are when we read about the concept? When it actually costs us something to set other people free, to release money for other people who have less than we do.
0: I'm trying to put it into a wide context now and I'm remembering bits of the Bible that talk about when you buy a field you pay as much as the number of years remaining till the next jubilee because what you're actually buying is the number of years until you're going to give it back and I think in the very broadest context here what God is teaching his people is everything is mine you can use it And you can use it to provide for you. And yes, create wealth and grow food and and support your family and society. But it's still mine. And I want you to remember, not just every seven years to have a break and let the poor glean. But I want every 50 years for you to really remember and give it all back to the original owner. And there's a legal structure in the land of Israel who was the original owner. The idea was that having... Taken the promised land, it's a big concept there about God promising a place for his people. You couldn't then sell God's stuff away and it wasn't God's anymore. No, eventually it all came back to being God's and it came back to belonging to whichever tribe he had allocated it to in the first place. I think that's a really helpful general principle of the idea of stewardship. We don't own the stuff, we're holding it for the master. And the master can ask us to do what he wants with it from time to time.
1: And then you can see where the concepts of do not covet and do not steal all stem from that same idea as well. We don't covet because it's not ours to covet, it's God's. We don't steal because it belongs to the people who God's given it to. I'm aware that we are rapidly running out of time, Simon, But I wondered about touching on the concept of promised land Mm. as you mentioned it there before we wrap up. Can you tell us a bit about it?
0: The promised land. I look back to the Old Testament and I try and see it in the broad historical sense of this band of people escaping from Egypt, somehow crossing the Red Sea with God's miraculous provision, And then wandering for 40 years with this promise of a land of their own, a place they can grow their own vine and fig tree and they can sit and enjoy it one day. But there's a journey of faithfulness, of obedience, of perseverance. Land means something to people. It means something to God. It means something to his people. And deeply emotionally, it means something to us as well. But we have to be really careful not to let land and property and possessions and houses, for example, replace God's place in our hearts. It's His, and He lets us enjoy it, but it's ultimately still His.
1: And we see other interesting things in that whole process, don't we? We see that God is a God who provides. Ultimately, he provides the promised land. But along the way, you have the manna and the quail. You have the tower of fire by night and cloud by day that guides them. You have a God who goes with them through that journey. You have a God who is faithful and who comes through on his promises. But we also see through the promised land that sense of partnership with god of relationship with him and there are definitely times where the israelites are wandering about the desert because they've not listened to god or they've decided to go their own way and so it's that interesting thing as well of throughout the bible and including with money actually god is inviting us into relationship with him he's not forcing himself on us he's showing us the way he's designed things to be but ultimately we have a decision as to whether we're going to follow that and trust that or whether we're going to make our own decisions and that applies to money and wealth as well
0: doesn't it just there are so many elements we could keep touching on i'm thinking now of topics to do with obedience god seems to keep saying if you do what i say then i will bless you and you will prosper there's also curses if you don't do what I'm asking you to do and telling you to do, then the land will be cursed. There's consequences of disobedience. There are issues to do with investing money, borrowing money, debt, going into slavery. There's issues of taking advice from other people when it comes to money, of being honest. God expects us to be honest with our possessions. To be honest, it just seems to go on and on as as God is building these foundational principles about how we should be handling the money and the wealth and possessions that he has so generously we haven't even talked much about God's generosity. It's all his and he's given us everything that we have. How we handle what he has generously given. So Bex I'm thinking it's probably time to wrap up episode one, money according to the Old Testament law. And can you take a guess as to where we're going with episode two? I'm going
1: to guess we're going into history books.
0: The books of history. So if you are history buffs, then join us next time as we talk about money according to Old Testament history. Bex, it's been a privilege and a pleasure talking to you. We'll see you next time. What can people do if they want to get in touch?
1: Well, if you've noticed a glaring theological error or you just want to encourage us in some way or ask a question or anything else you can get in touch with us by emailing us at where your treasure is at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or you can drop us a message on instagram at where is podcast and we'd love to hear from you and we'll see you next time to talk about history bye bye this podcast has been brought to you by free range podcasting let us take you where you and your podcast want to go